They were not accustomed to uh, sticking with a commitment for very long. And when serious temptations come along, we sometimes cave in. So I just want to pray right now for Peter. Father, uh, we just thank you for the incredible gift of grace that you've given to us. We thank you for this time of year when all churches throughout this world that you've created are concentrating upon the death, the burial, and the resurrection of your son. And Father, we just thank you for the people that were in our lives and discipled us and shared that message with us. But Father, one of us is hurting right now, and that is one of our elders, Peter Boyer. And Father, uh, he has been told that he could have a transplant of his liver, but he also has to maintain being a good candidate for all of this. So Father, we're praying first of all for healing, and we realize that you are the great healer, and if you so decide, you can heal him right now. And then Father, we pray if that's not the case, then our prayer is that he would continue to be a good candidate for a transplant. And Father, we just turn this all over to you because you are the healer. You are the one that is in control. And Father, I just ask that you guide us as we look at your word today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So too often today, we don't stick with our commitments. If marriage isn't working out so well, then we end it. If the Christian leaders disappoint us, then we just drop out of church altogether. If intellectuals ridicule the Bible, then we begin to doubt it. If people don't respond when we share our faith with them, then we stop doing that and we just leave our Bible at home. But the people who please God are the ones who tough it out regardless of the cost. And the greatest example of sheer determination is Jesus Christ. From the moment he began his ministry, he was resolved to die for the sins of the world. And that's why we read that he turned his face toward Jerusalem. And even though his disciples counseled him not to go there, and he told Judas Iscariot, what you're going to do, you do right now. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, my heart is troubled, but what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. No, it was for this reason that I came. And when the soldiers came to arrest him, he offered no resistance. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So today we're going to look at a series of religious and political trials that Jesus underwent. And each trial results in a guilty verdict, not because the enemies are so clever, but because Jesus was actually resolved that he was going to the cross. And I hope that as we review his determination to die for us, that we will be more determined to live for him, regardless of what adversity we're facing. So first of all, we see Jesus enduring the mockery of the soldiers. And we're in Luke 22, verse 63 to begin. The men who were guarding Jesus began making fun of him and beating him. Now these soldiers were there to make sure that Jesus didn't escape. But they thought, okay, let, let's take advantage of the time here. And they just relished the opportunity to exploit their power over Jesus. 
even though he hadn't been declared guilty yet. So they ridiculed him, made fun of him. When they got no responses, they struck him with their fists. Verse 64 says, they blindfolded him and said, prove that you were a prophet and tell us who hit you. They said many cruel things to Jesus. So this anti-Jesus crowd hated him so much that they were determined not to just defeat him, but they wanted to belittle him as well. And they blindfolded him, they smacked him with their fists. If you're a prophet, come on, tell us who actually hit you. And they would do that over and over again. And I bet at that moment in heaven, there was a whole legion of soldiers that drew their swords and they were ready to come down and just kind of take care of this earth place altogether. But he was resolved to put up with the mockery of the soldiers. And if we are followers of Christ, sometimes we have to put up with the mockery of others as well. If you're a Christian leader, you're going to be mocked and ridiculed. If some of it may be good-natured, I seem to get a lot of that, but other times people experience mean-spirited criticism, and it's hard to accept. And Jesus said to his disciples, No servant is greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. So if you bow your head and silently say the blessing in the cafeteria at high school, then someone's going to laugh at you. If you're in the college classroom and you say, well, I actually believe that there is a creative designer of the earth, you'll be laughed at. If you take an ethical stand that negatively affects the bottom line of your company, you're going to get a hostile reaction. If you refuse to take part in a party activity because you believe that's a sin, you may get excluded from that group altogether. If you get baptized by immersion, there may be some members of your family that oppose you. When that happens, we're tempted to retaliate in some way. But the lesson we learn from Jesus is don't retaliate. Leave the justice thing up to God. That's what Peter spoke about when he said, this is what you were called to do because Christ suffered for you and gave you an example to follow. So you should do as he did. He had never sinned and he had never lied. People insulted Christ, but he did not insult them in return. Christ suffered, but he did not threaten. He let God the one who judges rightly, take care of him. So Jesus endured the mockery of the soldiers without retaliating. Now, you're not going to get any funny stories in this message today because I couldn't think of any that tied into this very serious topic. So at the first service, I said, just laugh every now and then for people that are watching on TV right now. Just give some laughter, even if I don't say something funny. But so... Now he endures the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And we pick this up in verse 66. When the day came, the council of the elders of the people, both the leading priests and the teachers of the law, came together and led Jesus to their highest court. Now this council was called the Sanhedrin. And there were 70 plus people that were a part of this leadership group. And they had rejected the claims that Jesus was the Messiah. They anticipated that the Messiah was going to be 
a powerful religious ruler. And they anticipated that he would bond immediately with them, not like Jesus bonding with the tax collectors and the sinners. And they expected that this Messiah would come from royal blood and not someone born to peasant parents and placed in a stable. But they actually didn't pay attention to their own scriptures because Jesus, his parents, both Mary and Joseph, were direct descendants of King David. So it was royalty that he was coming from in an earthly sense. So this group was jealous when he began his ministry. They were threatened and blinded by their prejudice, and they couldn't see who he was. And this group successfully conspired to have Jesus arrested in order to silence him. Now they conducted two different religious trials that night. And one was before the high priest Annas. Now he had been deposed by the Romans years ago because he, he wasn't cooperating with them. But he was still highly respected by the Jews. So he held a position with them. And once they got the guilty verdict there, then Jesus was taken to Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, who was younger and not so respected, but he was a pawn of Rome. And both trials were held at night so that the followers of Jesus wouldn't find out about them until they were over. And they'd already had trouble with one of Jesus' followers. There was an incident in the Garden of Gethsemane with a sword, and they thought, if that happened there, just imagine if this whole mob was to get enraged. So they wanted to be careful. And their accusation religiously was blasphemy, which in Leviticus chapter 24 says the death penalty would be the charge for that. So picking up in 67, they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the powerful God. So Jesus knew these corrupt people that he was dealing with. He knows that they had already rejected the evidence that he had given to them. He gave evidence that the Messiah would be referred to as the Son of Man. He gave evidence that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in verse 70, they all said, then are you the son of God? And all Jesus had to do was say no or keep quiet and everything would have been fine. He would have been released. But Jesus said to them, you say that I am. Now no one stopped to investigate whether his claims were true. No one looked at his miracles, his testimony, the sinless life that he lived. They didn't look at the influence that he had upon people. They just hypocritically found him guilty of blasphemy and deserving death. But Jesus endured that because he was resolved to die for the sins of the world. And as followers of Christ today, we still endure religiously hypocritical people. Christian people are imperfect and will disappoint you along the way. People that you thought were saintly can be childless, self-centered, and hypocritical. One pastor said that he was asked to speak at a convention, and he went the night before so that he could get a feel for the atmosphere, but also because a friend of his was speaking that night, and he wanted to hear him. 
So he got there and his buddy started preaching and then he thought of something that he wanted to say in his message the next day. So he got a piece of paper out and wrote that down and then later on he got another idea and wrote it down and he did this a number of times throughout the message. A couple of days later, he received a message from a woman who was an attendee at the convention, and she wrote, I really appreciated your message, but what moved me even more was the night before when I saw you taking notes while Rick was preaching. Your humility and continued teachability after all these years is most inspiring to me. And then the guy said, I've been too busy to write her back because he loved that compliment and he's living in it. Christian leaders aren't always what they seem. Some are outright phony and manipulate people. Some are well-meaning and then they end up falling morally. And we're all flawed human beings. And the Apostle Paul discovered that. And he, he said, if anyone deserves special care, it, it was him. But when he was in prison in Rome, the Christian people forgot all about him that last time that he was there. See, we're in 2 Timothy. The first time I defended myself, no one helped me. Everyone left me. May they be forgiven. But the Lord stayed with me and gave me strength so that I could fully tell the good news to all those who are not Jews. So being a follower of Christ means that you're mature enough to endure the imperfections of Christian people. And... Jesus endured the mockery of the soldiers. He endured the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. And then he endured the superficiality of this group of politicians. So in chapter 23 now, in the first verse, then the whole group stood up and led Jesus to Pilate. Now Pilate had made some unwise decisions. He had tightened the restrictions on the Jewish people and he was not a popular man. He had even murdered some Jews. And the state over which he had actually had control was in chaos. And it was all because of revolutions under his rule in Judea. So Caesar had left him in Palestine, but he was now under probation. And historians tell us that after the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate was actually banished to Gaul. And while he was there, he took his life. So Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate for permission to execute. And the Jewish Sanhedrin, they couldn't pronounce the death penalty without the permission of Rome. So once they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy in their own courts, then they had to find something that he was guilty of through which the Romans would have him executed. So they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We caught this man telling things that mislead our people. He says that we should not pay taxes to Caesar and calls himself the Christ, a king. Now that charge was blatantly false. And in an earlier message in this series, we talked about when the religious leaders tried to trick Jesus. And they said, who should, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. But these guys, they're really digging to find something. And the Jews knew that they had Pilate in a tough spot because he'd already been reprimanded by Rome and he couldn't have another rebellion here in this area. But he also didn't want to condemn an innocent man. 
So he'd already been approached by his wife, and she said, I've had a dream, and in this dream I was told that this Jesus of Nazareth is innocent. So he's got that going on in his mind, as well as the fact that he wants to get this man off. But he was a politician, and his specialty was being noncommittal. It's like one guy, and this is what, one politician, this is what he said. I didn't say it. I said that I didn't say that I said it. I want to make that very clear. Yep, very clear. Another guy said, I'm not sure that I understand your question, but I agree with you. And then the Washington, D.C. mayor said this, outside of the murders, we have the lowest crime ratings in the country here. So that politicians can say anything to make it look a little better. So here's Pilate. He's searching for a way to get out of this difficult situation. And Luke records five different attempts that Pilate makes to get out of this. And the first one is he, he attempts complete dismissal of the charges altogether. So I'm going to be reading from verses 3 to 9 and making some comments throughout that. The Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Well, those are your words. And other gospels record him saying, My kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to the leading priests and the people, I find nothing against this man, so I'm going to release him, Pilate is basically saying. But the Bible says, they were insisting, saying, but Jesus makes trouble with the people, teaching all around Judea. He began in Galilee, and now he's here. Now, other passages say, they said, don't you release him, Pilate, because if you do, you are no friend of Caesar. We'll get you in trouble. And Pilate realized they were more determined than he thought. So then he tried referral. And Pilate heard this and asked if Jesus was from Galilee. Since Jesus was under Herod's authority, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time. So now this is the same ruthless tyrant who two years prior to this had Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, beheaded. And he is the one who is in control of Galilee. And so he's over Jesus' hometown. And he just happened to be in Jerusalem to observe the Passover, and even better, he happened to be staying next door to where this trial was taking place. So Pilate, he kind of breathes a sigh of relief, and he thinks, okay, I can pass this off. And he says, take him to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was excited because he'd been hearing so much about this Jesus of Nazareth, and he had, and the scripture says, he was very glad because he had heard about Jesus and wanted to meet him for a long time. He was hoping to see Jesus work a miracle. So talk about being superficial. He'd heard all about what Jesus was doing, and now he says, Jesus, perform a miracle for me. Let, let me see this. But Herod asked Jesus many questions, but Jesus said nothing. So he refused to use his supernatural powers as a sideshow and he didn't even speak in response to Herod's questions. So Herod retaliates in anger, and his soldiers made fun of Jesus, and sends him back to Pilate. Now in the past, Pilate and Herod were actually not even speaking to one another, they were enemies, but on that day, they became good friends. Now Pilate hated to see Jesus come back, 
So now he tries another tactic, and this one is amnesty. So Pilate called the people together with the leading priests and the rulers, and he said to them, okay, you've brought this man to me, saying that he makes trouble among the people, but I've questioned him in front of you all, and I've not found him guilty of what you say. And besides that, Herod hasn't found him guilty of anything. I sent him over to Herod. He has done nothing for which he should die. So after I punish him, I'm just going to let him go free. Now, in order to diffuse any patriotic emotions during Passover week, the Romans would annually agree to release one political prisoner as long as there was no resurrection or uprising amongst the people. So Pilate gets this ingenious idea. There would have been a little light bulb on his head if there was a movie made of that. And he thinks, okay, I will choose the most despicable person that I have in my jail. And I'll stand him there beside Jesus. And certainly they will choose Jesus. So he chooses this Barabbas. And he's certain that they don't want him back in their community. But he misunderstands did and he underestimated the deep-seated hatred they had toward Jesus and with one voice they cried out you give us Barabbas and you crucify the Christ so Pilate he's getting desperate so we now he tries to reason with the mob in verse 22 Pilate wanted to let Jesus go free and told this to the crowd but they shouted again crucify him crucify him A third time Pilate said to them, Why? What wrong has he done? Now, you've got to hand it to Pilate because he's doing everything he can to release Jesus and save his own hide. But you can't reason with an angry mob when they're driven by hatred and angry emotion. So the fifth thing he tries is appeasement. I can find no reason to kill him, so I will have him punished and set him free. Now, that makes no sense at all. If he's innocent, why punish him? But he's desperately trying to appease the people. So he's thinking, if I have Jesus flogged, then surely that severe beating will soothe their anger. Now, in our society, it's hard for us to imagine the horror of a flogging, when a leather whip with tips of bone and lead would be ripped across a man's bare back. And William Barclay said, sometimes a wayward blow would rip a man's eye out, and many people would actually die from the flogging. Some went insane. And the Bible simply says with less detail, Pilate refuses and had him flogged. And then I mentioned how they twisted together a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head and they put a purple robe on him and then struck him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. Tissendor was an early church expert and he recorded some letters that Pontius Pilate was said to have written in which he describes the crucifixion. And he writes, The mother of Jesus was brought to Golgotha and she looked at the crosses and her heart was broken and then she asked, which one is my son? So as the lamb was led to slaughter, he was beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah 52 said, 
Many people were shocked when they saw him. His appearance was so damaged, he did not look like a man. His form was so changed, they could barely tell he was human. So Pilate had Jesus scourged. Then he brought him before the crowd, hoping that the sight of him would now appease them, that they would now let him go. But almost like sharks seeing the sight of blood, they just became even more and more crazy. And they just shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And then he asked, why should I crucify your king? And then they said, we have no king but Caesar. So here they are hating being under Roman control. And now they're even saying, we love Caesar and we hate Jesus. So Pilate granted their command. Now his followers of Christ today, sometimes we have to endure the superficiality of some political leaders. They'll say that people come first, but really their lust for power is what comes first. So we don't put our trust in other human beings. We put our trust in Jesus Christ, who was worthy of our total allegiance. Only he endured the cross and died for your sins. Only he will never leave you nor forsake you. In 1980, a 22-year-old cancer survivor by the name of Terry Fox captured the hearts of Canadians. He had lost a leg to cancer in 1977, and he embarked on the Marathon of Hope. And this was an east-wide, excuse me, an east-west Canada-wide run to raise money and awareness for cancer. And his goal was to raise $1 for every citizen in Canada. So that was 24 million citizens at that time. So he began his run in June in St. John's, Newfoundland. And then he ran from there to the ferry to Cape Breton, took that ferry. Then he ran from Cape Breton to Halifax and then up to the ferry to Prince Edward Island, took a little tour across PEI, then the other ferry into New Brunswick and continued west from there. And he was running the equivalent of a marathon a day on a prosthetic leg. And it was just amazing to see him running. Every run was a limp, and you could see the pain on his face. But he was resolved that he was going to complete this mission. And he showed tremendous resolve. But cancer spread in his body again, and he was eventually forced to end his quest after 143 days, 5,373 kilometers. So he got as far as Thunder Bay, Ontario. And that's basically through Ontario, which is the worst part of that run. A little bit longer, he would have made it across the prairies. And then he lost his life just a few months later. But his efforts resulted in a lasting worldwide legacy and almost $1 billion has been raised since then in Terry Fox Runs for Cancer. And many of you have probably been involved in one of those runs. I don't know how many people I've sponsored in them. My kids, first of all, kids in the neighborhood, friends, kids in the church. But all because of the fact that he persevered, that he was willing to go to his mission with tremendous resolve. 
Jesus did that for us. He went to the cross. And there may be trials that threaten your Christian commitment today. It might be financial problems. It might be emotional problems. It could be stress. It could be physical pain. It could be family problems. But you say with resolution and with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if you don't know Christ, you're not going to be able to do that. And if you don't know him, this is a tremendous opportunity for you to show some resolve, to come forward and just meet me here in the front row, and we'll talk about what you need to do in order to find that salvation in Jesus.